I will set my bow. That means a rainbow. I will set my rainbow in the clouds. And the rainbow shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the clouds. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the rainbow shall be in the clouds. And I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token or the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is upon the earth. And the sons of Noah that went forth out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of these three sons was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And Shem and Ham took a garment, laid upon both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and saw their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be a servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. And all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now tonight in our study, we want to complete our study of Genesis chapter 9. Let's take just a minute to review where we are. Gen you know, the book of Genesis is divided into two major sections, Genesis 1 to 11, and Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 50. Genesis chapter 1 through 11, we have what we call primeval history. And the outline that we've studied so far goes like this. First of all, there's the creation of the heavens and the earth and man. That's Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3. Second, there is the original state of man. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to, uh, to verse 25. Third, there's the uh, fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. Four, there's the... Uh, the um, climactic uh, evil of the two generations, Cain and Abel, Cain and Seth, in Genesis 4 and 5. Number 5, there's the flood. And the flood runs from Genesis chapter 6 through Genesis chapter 9. Now in the story of the flood, we have three things. First of all, the prelude. And the prelude is um, uh, Genesis chapter 6, 1 to 8, and gives us the moral causes of the flood. Then second, we have the flood itself, which is Genesis 6, verse 9, to the end of Genesis chapter 8. What is the last verse in Genesis 8, verse 22? And then the third thing we have is the postlude, and that's Genesis 9. So in the story of the flood, we have three things. First, we have somewhat the introduction, the prelude. And then second, we have the story of the flood itself. And then third, we have a postlude, or a conclusion to the flood. And that's what we have in Genesis chapter 9. Now, in Genesis chapter 9, the postlude to the story of the flood, we have five things. May I ask you to turn out, uh, take out your outline and look on that? Five things. We call it a new beginning. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, after the flood. Now, there are five things in this, uh, in this uh, section, the new beginning. First of all, the basic ordinances governing the post-Diluvian world. Second, the covenant of God with Noah. Third, the failure of Noah his uh, drunkenness. Fourth, the prophecy of Noah. And number five, the death of Noah. Now, last week, we took up the first one. The basic ordinances govern the post-Diluvian world. And in that, we saw that there were three basic uh, ordinances that God uh, laid upon Noah and upon his family and upon all, all mankind, for that, uh, for that matter. Because God starts a new thing here in Genesis 9. First of all, God... Uh, restated that original mandate. Multiply, be fruitful, and mu uh, multiply and, and uh, replenish or fill out the earth. Then the second thing in that, uh, in that uh, the basic ordinances, the second thing we had was the uh, diet of man. God now expands man's diet 
and allows him to eat, um, well, what did he allow him to eat? Meat. Apparently, up to this time, man was a vegetarian. Now God expands his diet, allows him to eat meat, but with one exception. What is that exception? Blood. The blood. I was down, as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, I was down West Point, Mississippi. And uh, while I was down there, one of our students, Dickie Bryan, whose uh, father started the uh, Bryan Meat Packing Company, took me through that large packing company down West Point, Mississippi, and uh, um, showed me how they took a cow or took a beef from the time they started until they finished it and was sliced up. And then he took how they took a hog from the time it was started until it was finished up. One of the things he showed me was the, uh, the way they captured the blood and then froze it and then ground it up. And I said, what'd they do with it? Well, they used it for protein, for dog food, and for other sort of things. And I couldn't help but think of what we studied last week. God gave to man, after the flood, the right now to eat meat, but he restricted the blood. You can't eat the flesh with the blood in it. God restricted the blood, and we studied the reason for that last week. Now, the third thing God uh, instituted in those basic ordinances was the institution of human government and especially capital punishment. Now, we want to come to the second thing, and that's the covenant that God made with Noah, and that's found in Genesis chapter 9, verses 8 to uh, 17. The covenant God made with Noah. Now, there are many covenants in the Bible, and uh, this is called the, uh, uh, often called the Noahic covenant. A covenant uh, is of two kinds in the Bible. A covenant can be unilateral or bilateral. The Mosaic covenant, for example, was a, was a bilateral covenant. Now, you know what a bilateral covenant is. Bilateral covenant is a covenant between two persons in which one person, the party of the first part, pledges to do his part, and the party of the second part pledges to do his part. It's a bilateral covenant. Now, the Mosaic covenant is a bilateral lateral covenant god said in exodus 19 if you do this then i will do this the other kind of a covenant is a unilateral covenant now the noahic covenant is a unilateral covenant the essential element of that of that noahic covenant was that god pledged never to destroy the earth again by water now, there are several covenants in the Bible. When we come to Genesis chapter 12, we're going to study them a little more carefully. Uh, when we speak of covenants, we don't have in mind, by the way, what is often called covenant theology. Now, there may be, no doubt, some truth to covenant theology. Covenant theology says there are three great covenants. Covenant of grace, and the covenant of works, and then there's one other covenant. Now, whether or not those can be sustained by the Bible, that's not what we mean by covenant. When we come to study the Bible, there are probably eight, maybe nine covenants. The first covenant was the Edenic covenant, the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And that's stated, uh, the word is not used, the word covenant is not used, but the idea is there. God said, don't eat of the fruit of this tree, for on the day that you eat the fruit thereof, you shall surely die. That's the Edenic covenant. That was a, was that a unilateral covenant or bilateral? Bilateral. If you do not eat, then I will see to that you will not die. But if you do eat, then you will die. Bilateral. The second covenant was this covenant right here, the Noahic covenant. Now that covenant is a unilateral covenant. God said, I will never, I will. The unilateral covenant is usually are characterized by the use of the word I will. I will, I will, I will, and there are no ifs to it. The Noahic covenant was a was an unilateral covenant. God pledged by himself never to destroy this world in such a fashion again. And as a token of it, to us, he gave the rainbow. So every time we see the rainbow, we can think of this covenant. Then there's the Abrahamic covenant and the Palestinian covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant. When we come to Genesis chapter 12, 
we'll look at uh, a little more of those covenants. Now, let's look at this. Genesis chapter 9. Notice first the source of the covenant. The source of the covenant is God himself. Notice the I wills. Look at verse 9. Uh, verse 8. God spake unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you. And notice as we read, there are no I F, no if. I will establish my covenant with you, with your seed after you. And skip down from there down to verse 11. And I will establish my covenant with you. And verse 12, and God said, this is the covenant which I make between me and between you. And verse 17, and God said unto Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon this earth. Now notice, secondly, the benefactors. With whom did God make this covenant? Well, let's go back. With whom did he make the Edenic covenant? Adam and Eve, just two people. With whom did God make the Abrahamic covenant? With Abraham and the descendants of Abraham. With whom did God make the Davidic covenant? With David and with David's seed. With whom did God make this covenant? All with Noah and all mankind. See, I come under this covenant. I don't come under the Davidic covenant. And I don't come under the Palestinian covenant. And I wasn't under the Edenic covenant. But I'm involved in this covenant. The covenant that God made with Noah, he gave to Noah, he gave to me also. Look at verse 9. And I, the old I, established my covenant with you and with your seed after you. How many nations and races came from Noah? How many men came from Noah? All mankind came from Noah. So this is made with all mankind. Look at verse 11. And I'll establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of the flood. Look at verse 15. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. So I participate in this covenant. Now, what are the provisions of this covenant? Well, there are five or six provisions of this covenant. May I say this? I hope you listen carefully. The reason this covenant is important is because mankind still operates under this covenant. The man that's going to plow up the ground and sow the seed and reap a harvest is still under this covenant. The government that functions and, and, and uh, penalizes you when you break the law is operating under this covenant. And when you see the rainbow in the sky, God has given a token to you because you're involved in this covenant. Now, what are the provisions of this covenant? What did God promise to you and to me in this covenant? Well, look at chapter 8. It begins over in chapter 8, verse 22, verse 21. Chapter 8, verse 21. And the Lord smelled the sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. Look over chapter 9, verse 11. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. What's the first promise in this covenant? Well, the first promise that God is not ever again going to destroy every living creature as he did in the flood. Well, you say, what does it have to do with me? Well, that has to answer a good question that's raised sometime. Will we have a thermonuclear war that will destroy all mankind? Well, we may have a thermonuclear war, but it won't destroy all mankind because God has given his promise that he won't. He won't destroy all men until that great white throne judgment then he doesn't destroy all men even at that time. So God has pledged himself in this covenant not to destroy all mankind again as he did in the flood. And that answers that question about thermonuclear warfare. Notice the second thing that God makes in this covenant. And that's given to us in verse 22 of chapter 8. While the earth remaineth, chapter 8, verse 22, while the earth remains. Well, is the earth still remaining? Yes. 
you're living here it's remaining so while the earth remains god said seed time and harvest cold and heat southern winter and day and night shall cease god confirms the order of nature he guarantees the regular variations of times and seasons now to whom is that important well to all of us but especially to who to the farmers they operate according to harvest a cold heat summer and winter and day and night and god guarantees the regularity of the seasons in the noahic covenant that's the second thing a third thing down in chapter 9 verse 1 god blessed noah and his sons and said unto them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth here's a third element in this covenant and that is that god ordained um conception and childbearing and the right to expand upon this earth to subdue this earth number four a fourth element and that's found in, in this covenant that's found in chapter 9 verses 3 and 4. what is that fourth thing that god promises in the noahic covenant meat meat every moving thing that lives shall be food for you even as i gave the green herb vegetables as I gave those, now I am giving you all things. But flesh of the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. So next time when you sit down to that steak, or like me, sit down to that hamburger, <laughs> see, whatever it may be, next time you do that, next time you have some bacon, see, you can think this is part of the Noahic covenant. God mandated here, allowed them now to eat meat and say well why didn't he allow them that in genesis one day well the answer is i don't know see i don't know maybe it had to do something with the climactic changes that were affected by the flood i don't know but in genesis chapter one god gave them the green herb but not animal here god not only gives them the green herb vegetables he also gives them the animals now in the mosaic uh, uh, legislation god restricted the eating of all animals there were certain unclean animals that they could not eat and that included the hogs but in the new testament uh, those restrictions were lifted in first timothy chapter four uh, any meat can be accepted all received with thanksgiving all meats are now clean so that answers the question are we still under the mosaic legislation to abstain from the hogs from pigs well not on any not on any religious ground if there may be some you know physical dietary reasons that may be proper but not physical grounds so god mandated uh, a new diet in this noahic covenant and then there's one other thing that god included and that's found in verses five and six surely your blood of your lives will i require at the hand of every beast will i require the hand of, of man at the hand of every man's brother will i require the life of man verse six Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, what do we call that? The institution of capital punishment. So this is part of the Noahic covenant. Well, someone asked the question, wasn't capital punishment instituted before the, uh, the flood? No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. When Cain killed Abel, was Abel, uh, when Cain, killed Abel, was Cain put to death? No, as a matter of fact, God gave to Cain a sign, a token, a guarantee to him that no man would slay him. So capital punishment wasn't in effect. Then later on in Genesis chapter 4, Lamech makes the boast that a young man had wounded him, and because this young man had wounded him, he had killed him. And he made the boast that if Cain is to be avenged sevenfold, I'll be avenged 77 fold. That is, I can kill a man and kill him with impunity. So there was no capital punishment from the days of Adam to the time of the flood. flood. But now, capital punishment is instituted, and that's included in the Noahic covenant. And mankind still operates under the Noahic covenant. You eat meat, you're under the Noahic covenant. You see the rainbow in the sky? Do you? Yes or no? 
then you're under the Noahic covenant, see? Uh, do we still have the regular season? Harvest? Seed time? Spring? Does it get cold sometimes? You going to have the same kind of weather on July the 10th? I don't think so. Now, you may have this kind of weather on April the 15th, income tax, see? But you won't have it on July the 15th. You won't have it then. How come you have the different seasons? How come we have summer and winter, heat and cold? How come? Because that's part of the Noahic covenant. And mankind still operating under the Noahic covenant. And I happen to believe that the uh, institution of capital punishment, with all its safeguards, was established under the Noahic covenant and is still in effect today. Then one more thing under the Noahic covenant. And that's found in chapter 9, about verse, um, verse 13. The sixth provision of the Noahic Covenant, God says in Genesis 9, 13, I do set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a token, a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I'll remember my covenant. Now, that's what's called an anthropomorphism. When God says, I will remember, it doesn't mean that God tends to forget. And then all of a sudden, he remembers. That's, uh, in the Bible, God states things often about himself in human terms, so we can understand them. We read of the eyes of the Lord, but God doesn't have physical eyes. We read of the arm of the Lord, but God doesn't have a physical arm. Uh, we read of the heart of the Lord, but God doesn't have a physical arm. What are these things? Well, these are what are called anthropomorphism. Anthropos means human. Morphe, anthropomorphe, morphism. Morphe is form. Morphology, the doctors study morphology. Morphology is the study of form. And anthropomorphism is a statement put in human form or human terms. And these terms of God's eyes and God's art and God repenting and God remembering or anthropomorphism. They're stated in human terms so that we can understand them a little more easily. So God says in verse 15, I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you. In verse 16, and the rainbow shall be in the clouds, and I will look upon the rainbow that I remember the everlasting covenant. How long is this covenant going to last? Everlasting covenant. The everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's upon the earth. So every time you see the rainbow, that ought to remind you of the covenant that God made. See? Now, there's one thing that God didn't say about this rainbow. He didn't tell you there'd be a pot of gold at the end of it. See? Now, there may be, but I haven't found it yet. <laughs> but he did promise the rainbow. And every time you see the rainbow, you ought to remember the covenant that God made with all mankind. Now, may I ask you something? Why did God give the rainbow? He gave his word, didn't he, to Noah? If God gave his word to Noah, that ought to be enough, shouldn't it? Well, it is enough. God gave his word to Noah, that's enough. He ought not to have to give anything else. That's enough. But you see, God accommodates himself to our human weaknesses. He told us about the death of Jesus in the Bible. He told us very carefully about the death of Jesus in the Bible. So I don't need really anything more. But he knows my human frailty. He knows that I tend to forget things. So not only did he tell me about the death of Jesus in the Bible, he gave me something to remind me of that death. What was that thing? The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. I'm identified with Christ. The moment of my conversion, I'm joined to Christ and identified eternally with Christ. God tells me that in the Bible. And he identifies me with Christ by what is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, God tells me that. I don't need anything else. He tells me that. But he knows I'm weak. He knows my human frailty. So he's given to me an ordinance to remind me of that. Do you know what that ordinance is? Water baptism. To remind me of my identification with Christ. Now, God gave me this promise. I'll never destroy the world again as I did this time. So there's no fear of thermonuclear destruction of this world. 
God gave me a spot. That ought to be enough. But God is gracious. He knows the frailty of the human mind. So in addition to giving me the promise, God put his rainbow in the sky. Now, someone may ask, uh, were there ever any rainbows before Genesis 9? There may have been. I don't know. If there was a vapor canopy around this earth, if that theory is true, then perhaps there were no rainbows. Uh, but there might have been rainbows. But even if there were rainbows, God now invests the rainbow with significance. Circumcision, circumcision was a known operation prior to the time of Abraham. But in Genesis 17, God invested circumcision with covenant significance. Men baptized before the days of Jesus. Men baptized by immersion before the days of Jesus. But baptism was invested with significance in the days of Jesus and Paul. So the rainbow may have been in existence. It may not have been. I don't know. But even if it was in existence, God invested it with covenant significance at the time of Noah. And what were those promises? What were those promises? First, I'll never destroy this world again, totally as I did by flood. Second, the seasons will be regular. Third, I'll promise to you conception and fertility, the expansion of this earth. Fourth, I'm going to enlarge your diet. Fifth, I'm going to institute capital punishment and human government. And sixth, I'm going to give you a token of my covenant perpetually, and that's the rainbow. Now, my friends, that's why the Noahic covenant's important. The reason it's important is because the basic, um, the basic things under which we live and operate today were established here. We all eat meat. The farmer has to operate by season. What would happen if there were no summer and winter, no harvest and seed time? We'd have no harvest. We operate by that. We operate by human government. If human government were in existence, it would be anarchy. Nobody would be here tonight. It wouldn't be safe to be here tonight. You couldn't be here tonight. A man could steal and murder with impunity if there were no human government. God established human government in the Noahic covenant. And all these basic uh, elements of human society under which we live and human action were established in the Noahic covenant. And that's why this covenant with Noah is important. All right, now let's go on to the third thing we have in this chapter. found in Genesis chapter 9. And it begins at verse 20, verse 18. Genesis 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah that went forth out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and over them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a farmer. Or you've got in your Bible a husbandman, haven't you? You know, I read that for 15 years, especially in John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is a husbandman. And I read that for 15 years without knowing what is a husbandman. See, I was reared in the city, and it took me a long time to figure out what a husbandman is. It's a, technically, I think it's a viticulturist, the man that takes care of vines. Noah began to be a viticulturist, a farmer. And he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham... The father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. And his two brothers, Shem and Japheth, took a garment, laid, a and laid it upon both their shoulders, and they walked into the tent, but they walked in backwards so they wouldn't see the nakedness of their father, and they covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. Now, here's a story, a rather sad story, isn't it? The failure of Noah. Here's a man that's, uh, well, how old is he? Well, he's 600 years old when the flood took place. When he got out of the ark, he was 601. But
But his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, had no children. And when this took place, Canaan, the son of Ham, was a grown man. So Noah must have been 630, 640 years of age when this took place. And it took place several years after the flood. Now, the occasion is that Noah planted a, planted a vineyard, and he drank the wine. And by the way, this is the first mention of wine in the Bible in connection with drunkenness and shame. And it's an interesting thing, by the way, that in the first two mentions in the Bible of wine, you listening? In the first two mentions of the Bible and wine, there's also the mention of drunkenness, and there's also the mention of immorality. Here's the first mention, and with it, immodesty. The second mention is Genesis 19, where Lot's daughters up on the mountain got their father Lot drunk and had an incestuous relationship. And out of that incestuous relationship came the nation of Moab, the Moabites who gave the nation of Israel a lot of trouble. First two mentions of wine in the Bible and drunkenness connected with immorality, immodesty, and incest. First two mentions. Now, we can't mitigate this thing. Every once in a while, I pick up a commentary and say that, that, uh, that Noah is to be pitied rather than to be blamed. He didn't know what would happen if he drank this wine, and, and he didn't intend to do it. Now, you know, I have a great respect for Noah, but you can't get him off the hook that way. See? He just is. Now, there were two, uh, there are two sins here that uh, which Noah was um, involved. One, of course, was the sin of drunkenness, and it was a sad thing. Sad thing. The story teaches us that no matter how high a man may rise spiritually, he's never immune to sin. Old Dr. Ironside used to play, and he'd tell us when he's down in seminary, he'd tell us this. Dr. Ironside used to pray when he was over 60 years of age. Lord, uh, keep me from being a foolish old man. His first wife died. He lived alone for quite a while. And he prayed, Lord, keep me from being a foolish old man. Man never rises so high but what he's immune to sin and temptation. And here's a rather sad picture of Noah. Now, you know, the nice thing about all the failures of these men in the Old Testament, the failures of Abraham, and he had some failures, and the failure of Noah, and the failure of Adam, and he had a failure, and the failure of Joseph, and the failure of Moses, is that when we come over to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, God never brings up their failures. All he does in Hebrews chapter 11 is to commend them. Now, you know what we do often? We do just the reverse. See, a man may, a man may be uh, uh, responsible for many wonderful acts, and he happens to drop the ball one time. And all we remember him, you know, is that one time that he dropped the ball, and we forget about all the nice things he did. God does just the opposite. All right, now the two sons, um, Ham, uh, look at verse 9. Ham, Ham says in chapter 9, verse 22, two things that Ham did. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, what's the first thing he did? Saw, and that word is gaze, and the idea of it has satisfaction. He gazed at the nakedness of his father. And may I say this, may I say this, I hope I can say it appropriately and respectfully and delicately. Uh, I think this teaches us something, and that is, I see a lot of articles about this, and that is that children and parents ought not to have any problem with undressing and dressing before one another and so on down the line. Well, I personally don't think that's appropriate. Not the father, the son, see, or the young son. Although I think when a son gets up to a certain age, then he ought also to observe the son's privacy even then. But the children, you know, um, seeing that, I just don't think that's wholesome. And I think it was inappropriate here, see. He saw his father's nakedness, and obviously he was wrong from what God said later on. He saw his father's nakedness. He gazed upon it, and he gazed upon it. The idea of this word see is to gaze upon it with satisfaction. Now, I don't think there's any homosexual tendencies here. Some men see homosexual tendencies here. I don't think so. 
I think what, 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 what we see here is that there's a long, smoldering resentment uh, on Ham's part against his father's authority and his moral rectitude. He didn't like his daddy's authority. And he didn't like that sort of moral rectitude that Noah um, seemed to emulate. And he preached, you know, for 120 years, righteousness. And he didn't like that. And he didn't come out in open, uh, open rebellion against it because he had the two brothers to deal with. But nevertheless, it was way down deep inside. And it smoldered and smoldered down deep inside. And suddenly, what happened to his daddy? He fell flat on his face, didn't he? He got drunk, and he came into the tent. And, of course, you can't knock very hard at tents, see? And the daddy was drunk anyway. He couldn't have answered. And he opened the tent, and there was his daddy, flat out on his back, dead drunk, naked. And that gave him a lot of satisfaction, see? Now, you know what he does? What does the Bible say? He did just the opposite. What does the Bible say about love in 1 Corinthians 13? Love covers multitude of sins. Love covers the multitude. Love is silent when a man falls, but not Ham. Ham ran out, verse 22, and told with delight, told with delight, the verb carries this idea, told with delight his father's failure and drunkenness and sin. Sham, Sham, Japheth was saddened by this. Saddened by it. We're always saddened. I think any true son is saddened. Uh, by his father's failure. You know, down deep inside the heart of a son, whether we know it or not, down deep inside the heart of a son is the desire to have his father's approval and desire to have someone he can look up to. And his father fails, and he's going to find another father in him. Deep down in the heart of any son is desire to, to have the opportunity to look up to his father and conversely to have his father's approval. Both of them. And Shem and Japheth had that. And they were, they were distressed and saddened. And they refused to join in the hilarity and delight of Ham. And so they went in the tent and took that blanket, went in modestly and went in backward and covered their father. And um, the daddy woke up, verse 24, woke from his wine, his wine stupor means, woke from his drunkenness, and he knew what his younger son, younger, not youngest, younger, not youngest, Shem was probably the oldest. Ham was in the middle. Japheth was the youngest. And so it says he awoke and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Ham's real sin was what one of immoral lust, but of rebellion against his father's authority. Now, what's the point of this story? Because I want to move on and catch the last part of this chapter. On this story is that is the lesson on the sinfulness of the best of men. No man rises so high but what he can fall. That story is pointed up in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. And 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, Take heed, let every man take heed, who thinks he stands, lest he do what? And, you know, as soon as I think I'm impregnable to temptation, that's about the time I'm going to fall. Man says, why, uh, it's impossible for me to do that. I see over yonder that man do that. That's a terrible thing. I'm a Christian. I can't do that. I'm above that. Now, just about the time he says that, he's going to fall flat on his face. Because uh, every human heart is a spiritual sewer. And every man is capable of the worst of crimes. Well, now you say, you mean every unsaved man. No, I mean every, every believer until God brings him home to heaven, is capable of the worst of crimes. Moses, who gave us the command, thou shalt not kill, murdered a man as a believer. Noah got drunk. David committed adultery as a believer. And David sent a man out the front lines and had him murdered as a believer. And Peter denied Jesus. So that believers are capable. And, 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 uh, and although God is day by day sanctifying our lives and purifying our lives and molding our lives and developing us. Now, are you listening to me? That same sinful nature that you are born with still resides in you and is capable. 
of the works of God. And that lesson teaches us that the best that man can fail, the failure is possible for a godly man. And of course, another lesson we learn from this is the evils of drink, leading to the loss of decency and honor. Now, I want you to turn with me to Genesis 19 and uh, look at the second occasion of wine. And when you think about wine and about drink, I hope you'll keep these two passages in mind. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about wine. It says it in Proverbs, Proverbs 23 and Proverbs 31. We're not going to look at those. Let's just look at, Luke, at, at Genesis 19, verse 30. Lot went up out of Zohar. Now, Lot's lost his, most of his children. He's lost his home. He's lost his belongings. He's lost his wife. And the only people with Lot are his two daughters. And Lot went up out of Zohar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. For he feared to dwell in Zohar. So he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father Lot is old. And there's not a man in the earth that coming unto us after the manner of all the earth. That is to have uh, relationships with us. We live up here in the mountains. We have no chance of meeting any men and getting married. And yet we want children. So verse 32, come, let us make our father drink wine. And we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drunk with wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he perceived not when she lay down nor when she arose. And it came to pass on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let's make him drink wine tonight also. And go thou in and lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger rose and lay with him. He perceived not when she lay down nor when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. We call this incest today. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. The same as the father of Moabite to this day. And the younger, she had a son, called him Ben-Ami, and the same as the father of the children of Ammon to this day. And those are two deadly enemies of the Israelites, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 9. The main point of this story, the, uh, of the story of the failure of Noah, however, is not those two things. The main point of the story is that this explains the marring, M-A-R-R-I-N-G, the marring of the inheritance of Ham, Ham's inheritance to his flagrant, unfilial act. And that, that is, leads us to Genesis 9, 24 to 29. Now let's read this together. Genesis 9, 24 to 29. And Noah woke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, the servant of servant shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be a servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be a servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now here's a prophecy, one of the most important prophecies in all the Bible, because it's the prophecy regarding the nation especially regarding the distribution of the nations of antiquity. Now, the three passages that go together. We're going to study the next two next, uh, next night, next Monday night. We have Genesis chapter 9, 24 to 27. There's a prophecy of the nation of the distribution of the nation. Then in Genesis chapter 10, we have what is often called the table of nations. This shows us how the nations were distributed in, in history, and some of this reaches beyond the days of Abraham even. And then in Genesis 11, 1 to 9, we have the M.O., the modus operandi of how, how, the nations were divided or distributed. So we have three things here. 
We first of all have the prophecy of the nation. That's in 24, chapter 9, 24 to 27. Then in Genesis chapter 10, we have the distribution of the nations. And then in Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9, we have the table of how those nations were divided or distributed. Now, the important thing that we need to observe is that this section here chronologically precedes Genesis 10. Genesis 10 is the result. Genesis 11, 1 to 9 is the cause. Now, what, what do we find in Genesis 11, 1 to 9? What's that called? The Tower of what? The Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babel. And that's when the languages were divided and the nations were divided. So Genesis 11, 1 to 9 tells us the cause, and Genesis 10 tells us the effect. And that means that Genesis 11, 1 to 9 precedes Genesis 10. So we have three things here, and they go together. They're units. The first one is the prophecy of what's going to happen. That's Genesis 9, 24 to 27. The second thing we have which is several hundred years later, is the, uh, the method by which this is accomplished. That's the story of the Tower of Babel. And then in Genesis chapter 10, we have the fulfillment of that thing. Follow me? Prophecy, method, result. The prophecy in Genesis 9, 24 to 27, the, the cause, the method by which it's accomplished, Genesis 11, 1 to 9, and third in Genesis 10, the result, the distribution of the table of nations. Now, next Monday night, we're going to study Genesis 10 and Genesis 11, 1 to 9. We're going to study as a package because it fits together. And, but you need to keep in mind. Now, one of the fundamental purposes of Genesis 9, 24 to 27 is to show the origin of the Canaanites and to set forth the source of their moral pollution. Now, may I repeat that? May I repeat that? When um, eventually Jacob went down into Egypt, if you remember geography, and, and the children of Israel were in Egypt 430 years, they came out of Egypt under Moses, were in the wilderness for 40 years, came around to the east side of the Jordan River, and Moses died. Joshua led them into the land of Canaan. Before they went to the land of Canaan, God said to them, I want you to destroy all the Canaanites. Now, that's a very perplexing thing. It's a hard thing for us to understand. Hard thing for us to understand. But God said, destroy the Canaanites when you go in. And we didn't understand this as well as we could understand it until 30 or 40 years ago when the archaeologists uncovered over in, uh, over in Phoenicia what are called the Ugaritic texts. And the Ugaritic texts show us what the religion of the Canaanites is like. And the Canaanite religion was the most debased, degraded, obscene, immoral religion uh, that the world has ever witnessed. Matter of fact, when they first came out, they wouldn't even translate these texts into the English language. They were so obscene and debased. They would today. Now, what explains that? How was it that the Canaanites were morally debased? Well, what? The author of Genesis is doing what Moses is doing by the Holy Spirit is tracing it right back to its origin. Because the principle of the Bible is that you'll never be able to understand the character of a thing until you understand its origin. What did Jesus say in John 3, 6? That which is born of the flesh is, and the word flesh means sinful nature. That which is born of sinful nature is sinful nature. So if I want to understand my sinful nature, I've got to go back to my birth and to my parents and they to their parents. If I want to understand the character of a thing, I go to go back to its origin. To understand the moral degradation of the Canaanites, I have to go back to the beginning of the Canaanites, and that's this man, Canaan, the son of Ham. Here is the source of the moral degradation of the Canaanites. Now, we want to look at this in the time that remains at this prophecy. I want to say one other thing. This is a prophecy, not a curse. When we read, look at Genesis chapter 9, and it's very important to observe this. When we read in verse 25, chapter 9, 25, and he said, Cursed be Canaan. In your Bible, what is that little word, be? What is it in? Italic. It, it's not cursed be. 
It's cursed is. It's not a curse. It's a prophecy. It's not a curse. It's not a malediction. It's a prediction. It doesn't tell us what God is going to make him, but by the Holy Spirit, Noah looks down the course of history and tells him what he's going to be. Supposing I have one son. Now, I don't. But suppose I had a, a, a boy of mine that was 11. Now, I've got a son. I don't mean to say that. But supposing I had a son who was a, 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 a 13 years old, 14 years old. And by this time, he's drinking. He's on pot. He lies. He steals. I say to him, if you keep on this way, you're going to end up in jail in prison forever. You're going to be a prisoner. Now, is that a curse or is that a prediction? Prediction, not a curse. So this is not a curse. It's not cursed be Canaan. It's cursed is Canaan. It's not blessed be, blessed is. And by the Holy Spirit, Noah looks down the court of history and sees what the descendants of Canaan are going to be like and what the descendants of Ham are going to be like what the sense of Shem are going to be like, what the descendants of Japheth are going to be like. Now, here's Noah. He had three sons. He had, uh, he had Shem, and he had Ham, and he had Japheth. And we'll look at their distribution next, next time. I was going to tonight, but we're not going to have time. Out of Shem comes ultimately Abraham, and ultimately out of Shem come the Israelites. And ultimately out of Shem comes Christ. Jesus Christ is a member of the Semitic uh, races. Out of Ham came Canaan. He was his son. And out of, the, out of Canaan came the Canaanites. And that's one reason why there's a lot of material on the Canaanites. And then out of Jabe came those who descended. I think it's important to observe also, since this text has been misused, the misused was misused around the Civil War time, that the, the malediction did not fall upon Ham, it fell upon Canaan. And, and the Canaanites were light-skinned, not dark-skinned. And the malediction fell on Canaan. Now let's look at these three and look at them quickly. Will you take your Bibles with you and... And look at uh, chapter 9, verse 25. You see, it's uh, the first one's Canaan, verse 25. The second one is Shem, verse 26. And the third one is Japheth. Verse 25, cursed is Canaan. Verse 26, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And verse 27, God shall enlarge Japheth. Now let's look at these three. First, Canaan. Canaan. Who is Canaan? Well, Canaan is the fourth son of Ham. Turn to the Bible in Genesis 10, verse 6. Genesis chapter 10, verse 6. And we're going to look at this next week more carefully. And the sons of Ham, sons of Ham, Cush, Cush, which is another name for Ethiopia, Mizraim, Mizraim, that, that, that's in the Hebrew, that's a plural form. And it's plural because it refers to Egypt. And Egypt was divided into Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. Lower Egypt was north, and Upper Egypt was south. And so Mizraim refers to Egypt. And Put, and Put is the land that's east, uh, west of Egypt, Libya. And one more, Canaan. And Canaan are the tribes that, that settled in the land of Canaan and the land of Phoenicia and up in Syria. And Canaan was the fourth son. And the reading, going back to 925, is not cursed be Canaan, but cursed is Canaan. This is a word of prophecy, not a malediction. Noah, by the Holy Spirit, saw the outworking of the evil trait in Canaan, in Canaan's descendants. And so he said in verse 25, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Now let's look at, at this prophecy, and then we're going to close our study tonight. I want to close it by asking five questions. First one is this. Is this a statement of fact? Is it a prophecy or is it a curse? Well, I've already answered that. This is not a malediction. It's a prediction. 
It's not a curse, it's a prophecy. God doesn't mandate something here. But Noah, by the Holy Spirit, saw that this evil trait in Canaan would be found also in his descendants. Now the second question, a very obvious question, why did he put it on Canaan? Ham was the one that went in to the tent and saw his father's nakedness and rejoiced in it. Why did it fall upon Canaan instead of upon his father Ham? Well, uh, the answer to that is we probably really don't know. I don't know that anybody does know, and especially the person who says, I know for sure. See, there's one thing you know for sure, he probably doesn't know. And I don't know. Uh, I don't think that the, the old saying, the sins of the fathers will be visited on the son, that's a true principle, but I don't think that's the solution here. It may have been that Canaan was involved in this thing. You notice every time he mentions Ham, he mentions Canaan. Look at verse 18, chapter 9. And the sons of Noah that went forth out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. Now, why didn't he tell about the other sons of the other two brothers? He didn't. He just mentions Canaan. Ham was the son of Canaan. Look over at verse 22. And Ham, how does he identify Ham? Father Canaan saw the nakedness of his father. Now, is the suggestion in verse 22 that Canaan also went in with his daddy? and saw his grandfather's nakedness? Well, the Bible doesn't say that. And that's only an inference, but it may be a good inference. I suppose the main thing we can say is that, that Noah is making this prediction by the Holy Spirit. He looked down by the Holy Spirit down the corridor of time. He saw that the evil traits seen in Canaan were going to be more evident, or the evil traits in Ham and going in and looking at his father and rejoicing that, we're going to be seen in the descendants of Canaan, and therefore he announces it. Now the third question, who are Canaan's descendants? Well, would you look over at Genesis chapter 10? Genesis 10, 10 verse, chapter 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. So if we, here's Ham, the sons of Ham were, who were those down? The first one is Cush, is that right? That's Ethiopia. The second one was Mizram, that's, that's Egypt. The third one is P-U-T or P-H-U-T, which is Libya, and then Canaan. He had four sons. Now, who were the sons of Canaan? Well, in, in chapter 10, skip on down to verse 15. Skip down to verse 15, chapter 10. And Canaan begot Sidon. His firstborn. Well, now you know what Sidon is. You remember Jesus went up to a couple of cities in his ministry way up in Phoenicia. They were called Tyre and Sidon. Here, the Sidonians. Who lived in, in, in who lived in, in Tyre and Sidon? Tyre, the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians who gave us our alphabet. A, B, C, D. Our alphabet given to us ultimately by the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were the Britishers of the second millennium. That is, they sailed the seas. They were the men that established colonies in North Africa. The Phoenicians, little small country like the England, but powerful influence. And this is Sidon, Phoenicians, Phoenicians. Look at the next one, verse 15. And Heth, that's the Hittites, and the Jebusites. Where did the Jebusites dwell? Anybody tell me? What's another name for Jerusalem? Jebu. The Jebusites dwelled in Jerusalem. And, and, and when David came to the throne, David said, whoever goes up to Jerusalem and takes, knocks out the Jebusites, I'll give him my daughter, the Jebusites. And the Amorites, who lived in the north part of Palestine, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemrites, the Hamathites. And afterwards, the families of Canaan Night spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto, yeah, what's that place that they're arguing about today? The Gaza Strip. You know where that is, don't you? Southwest Palestine. Thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboim, even unto Lasha. 
That's the Canaanites. Now, where did the Canaanites, um, where did the Canaanites dwell? Well, the Canaanites dwelled in Palestine. If that map will come out, and I don't want to draw on this map, but um, the four sons of Ham, here was Cush in what we call Egypt. This is Cush. Uh, pardon me, this is Mizraim, Egypt. South of Egypt is what's called Ethiopia. And that's Cush. Cush is another name for Ethiopia. Over here was P-H-U-T or P-U-T. That's Libya. And up here is Canaan. You got the word Canaan right there. Here's Phoenicia, north of Shechem there. This is Phoenicia, and this is Palestine proper. And the Canaanites were the inhabitants of Canaan. The Canaanites were inhabitants of Canaan. And they were the ones whom Israel had to push out uh, to expel when they went into the land of Canaan. Now, how was this prediction fulfilled? Let's look at that question and we'll be through. It says in verse Chapter 9, verse 25, Cursed is Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Now, may I answer that negatively by saying right away that this prophecy has nothing to do with the black man. There's no relationship of Canaan to the Negro here. See? That was used around the Civil War, and there was no relationship here because this, this prediction was about Canaan and the Canaanites and the Canaanites, we know from archaeology, were light-skinned. Well, if that's, not, if that's true, but how was this prophecy fulfilled? A servant of servant means reduced to abject slavery. How was that prophecy fulfilled? It was fulfilled three ways. She's going to be a servant. Canaan's going to be a servant to Japheth. And he's going to be a servant to Shem. Now, how were those fulfilled? How did he become a servant to Shem? And how did he become a servant to Japheth? Three ways. First of all, to Shem. How, was Cain, how did Cain become a servant to Shem? We won't look at it. We won't have time. But you read Joshua chapter 9 and 1 Kings chapter 15, and you'll see how Canaan became a servant to Shem. You remember when Joshua invaded the land of... invaded the land of... Uh, Canaan went into Canaan that he, um, um, some men tripped up Joshua and, and God said to expel them and don't spare them and, and uh, don't, don't spare them. And you remember some men came to him dressed in old clothes. How many of you remember that story? Dressed in old baggy clothes and old baggy shoes and real old looking. And Joshua said, uh, Kind of way my boys run around. See? <laughs> oh, well, they really don't. But they had these old baggy clothes on and long beards and low beat-up shoes. And, and Josh said, where do you come from? Why, we've been traveling long, long way, many miles. We, we want to join with you. So Joshua, very unwisely, made a treaty with them. said, I won't destroy you. And then he found out a day later that these people lived right over yonder. They were the Gibeonites, descendants of Canaan. See? So he found that out since he couldn't destroy them. He had made a covenant with them. He reduced them to drawers of water and hewers of wood. And they were made slaves. Later on under Solomon, the Canaanites were once again made slaves. And that was fulfilled in those two. Second, now, will you look here? Second, in 538 B.C., the great empire of Babylon fell to Persia. Who founded Babylon? A descendant of Canaan. Who founded Babylon? A descendant of Canaan. The Babylonians were descendants of Canaan. Who are the Persians? The Persians are Japhethites. The Hamites settled Canaan and the northern part of Africa. The, Sem the, the descendants of Shem, the Semites, settled what's called the Fertile Crescent, that green area. The Japhethites settled this whole area here. They're what are called the Indo-Germanic races. And the Persians belonged to Japheth. They were Japhethites. 
And in by October 538 B.C., Persia conquered Babylon, and the Babylonian Empire fell, and the Persians either killed them, Babylonians, or made them slaves, and that was the second fulfillment. That was when Canaan became a servant, verse 27 of Genesis, Genesis 9. That's when Canaan became a servant of Jacob, a third time third time. Do you remember your northern history, uh, your Roman history? You remember way over here, not on the map, but way over here, probably the greatest city of, of northern Africa prior to the days of Jesus was a city called Carthage. Carthage fell in 146 B.C. The Roman Senate, especially one man in the Roman Senate, kept saying, uh, uh, my Latin is a little obscure, so I won't recite it. But he said, in effect, Carthage must be destroyed. Carthage must be destroyed. Carthage must be destroyed. Let's make no Panama Treaty with Carthage. Carthage must be destroyed. Must be destroyed. 146 B.C., the Romans sailed across the Mediterranean and destroyed Carthage. Now, what does that have to do with this prophecy? Carthage was founded by the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians sailed out of Tyre and Sidon over to Carthage and founded that colony. And the colony of Carthage was founded and established by the Phoenicians. It was therefore a Canaanite colony. The Romans were descendants of Japheth, all these Indo-Germanic races, descendants of Japheth. And when Carthage fell to the Romans, the Canaanites became servants to the Japhethites. And this prophecy was fulfilled first in the entrance of Israel into Canaan, the time of Joshua, second in the fall of Babylon in 538 B.C., and third in the fall of Carthage to Rome. Now we'll take up very briefly next time those last two verses. And the next time we're going to study Genesis 11, Genesis 10, in Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Now, will you give me about...